Thank you for taking the time to listen to the sermon from Hope Church Toronto North. It is our prayer that through this, you are challenged by the Word of God, you are built up in love, and that you are drawn more to the person and work of Jesus Christ. We want to remind you, this is never meant to substitute God's good plan for you to be present in a local church under the care of qualified elders. If you do live in the North Toronto area and are looking for a local church, we invite you to join us at one of our Sunday morning gatherings. Our desire is that God would use this to encourage you with the hope we have in Jesus. Uh, but Hope Church Toronto North, it is so good to be uh, with you. Uh, it feels like on a church level, <laughs> uh, we've been experiencing quarantine a bit as well. That uh, we've our churches as a whole have been distanced in a bit, uh, and so it's just so good to see uh, our church family uh, all over um, again. Um, we're gonna uh, jump uh, right into this, but let me just pray for for God's word to cut us now. Our Father, we ask that you come and that you reveal your word to us. Lord, it says in your, in your word that it is living and active. And Lord, we just ask for your word to do what it was designed to do. And that's to cut us open, to convict us, and to show us your way. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. And Lord, give us soft, tender hearts. Lord, it says in your word, if he who has ears, let him hear. And if you hear his word, do not harden your heart. So, Lord, give us soft hearts to hear tonight. In your most precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Today, uh, we're going to be taking a break from your series in Habakkuk, uh, but we're not going to be going far. As you've seen in the previous weeks, uh, Habakkuk lines up with 2 Kings 23 or 2 Chronicles 36 during the corrupt reign of King Jehoiakim, and this was the context in which Habakkuk is inquiring of God. But today, we're going to flip the page back a bit and look at the narrative that came before we're going to be looking at 2 Chronicles chapter 34, and I invite you to turn there with me now. 2 Chronicles 34. And as you're turning there, just to give you a preview of tonight, we'll see in this passage that it gives us a glimpse of King Jesus who reigns on high. And isn't that really what we're all greatly longing for today? Amidst an uncertain public health landscape, we long for the king who reigns on high. Amidst an uncertain political landscape, on the heels of a closely watched presidential election, our hearts long for a king who reigns on high. You see, Zooming Out Chronicles tells us the story of, Jesus, of Judah's kings. It shows faithful kings and unfaithful kings alternating throughout the story. It shows faithful administrations and unfaithful administrations. And as you're reading, the chronicler wants you to ask the question. As you're reading, you're searching for the ending of the story. And you're asking this question, when will a good king finally come? When will a good king finally reign? Now, towards the end of the story, right at the end, we come to the story of Josiah, and he is simply remarkable. He is the last good king of Judah, and this is his story. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 34, starting at verse 1, and we're just going to walk through this passage. Verse 1, Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. 
These verses introduce us to Josiah and give us a summary of his reign. It gives three descriptors of Josiah. It says, he did what was right in God's eyes. He walked in David's ways and he didn't turn aside. What a summary. Thrust in, as a king from eight years old all the way to 39 years old, that was the summary of his reign. And if you look at his family history, his story is a complete surprise. His father, Amon, was king before him. He did evil in God's sight. And soon enough, his servants turned on him. They conspired and they killed him together. So Josiah was thrust in as king at the age of eight. Yet somehow he was a good king. Somehow this was one of the greatest administrations in the day. Somehow he would fulfill the longings of a people for a good king. How did that happen? What was his story? Well, that's what the really, really the rest of the passage tells us about. It tells us the story of a crushed king. The story of a crushed king, and that's the title of our message. The first point, the first thing we learn about Josiah tonight is that Josiah was a king who crushed idols. Josiah was a king who crushed idols. Uh, let's continue at verse three. It shows us how Josiah began. Take a look at the text. It says, for in the eighth year of his reign, so that's when he was 16 years old, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the ashram and the carved and metal images. Did you notice the word began? He was a king with a great start. He began, and he began to do two polar opposite, two, two opposite things, two sides of the same coin. First, he begins to seek the true God, one side of the coin. And then at age 20, he begins to purge false gods. And we start to see something absolutely remarkable. If you continue to read, you see verse 4 vividly describing the scene. And look at the descriptions in verse 4. It says, and they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence. And he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the ashram and the carved and metal images. And he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. You see, his first order of business was this huge demolition project. He starts in Judah and Jerusalem, and you see these words. He chops down, he cuts down, he broke in pieces. But note, he didn't just stop at pieces. He went all the way to making dust of them. He crushed them to a dust. He crushed the idols. And all that remained of the idols in Judah and Jerusalem was just dust. But he wasn't done there. Keep reading verse 6. Verse 6 reads, And in the cities of Manasseh and Ephraim and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars, and he beat the ashram and the images into powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. 
See, his idol crushing didn't just stop at Judah and Jerusalem. It went all around. I think we have this map here that shows the regions circled that were mentioned here. These are all regions of the northern kingdom. They're not even part of his jurisdiction. He's the king of the southern kingdom. He goes to all of those regions in red and to the ruins all around. He was the king of Judah, went way beyond to the furthest corners of the land. And you see him do the same thing. It's the same trend. He broke down and he beat into a powder. He literally pulverized the idols of the day. And only after that did he return to Jerusalem. He only returned when the job was done. Why does the chronicler in Chronicles spend so much time here describing how he got rid of all of these idols? If you look at the parallel passage in 2 Kings, it doesn't go into this detail. But here the chronicler makes pains to give us the detail. Why? I mean, when you stop and think about it, couldn't Josiah have stopped so much earlier? Couldn't he just have stopped at breaking the pieces? Why not stop there? Do you really have to crush and powder everything? Now, couldn't he just have stopped at Judah and Jerusalem? I mean, that's where he's king. Do you really have to go to Manasseh and Naphtali, to the furthest corners of the land? Idol demolition. It's his first order of royal business for a 20-year-old king. It's so thorough. It's so far-reaching. It was a six-year demolition project. Why was this such a high priority? Why go so far? It's because idolatry is our biggest problem. The chronicler wants to, stop, wants to take the time because he wants to show us how serious idolatry is and how far we have to go to really take it seriously, to get rid of it fully. It's no accident that the Ten Commandments start with idolatry and right worship. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. Now, sometimes we read these passages in the Old Testament and we think, when we think about the Israelites and the people of Judah, and we think that's a problem for them. I mean, there's no Asherah, there's no Baal statues here that we're bowing to. But take a look at the Asherah and Baal idol. I mean, ask the question, what are they gods of? Uh, you, you see on the screen two pictures of these idols that were worshipped at the time. Uh, Asherim is the plural form of the wooden Canaanite fertility goddess, Asherah. Asherah was the deity of beauty and sensuality. And while we may not bow to an idol or a statue that looks like that, I, I implore you, if, if you're on social media wishing that you could look the way they look, be as attractive and desirable as they are, you're bowing to Asherah. If you're lusting after pornographic or explicit material, you're bowing to Asherah. Idolatry is alive and well today. We may not bow to physical statues, but if you open up your medicine cabinet and you look at your wellness and your beauty products, you may just find the symbols of Asherah worship. What about Baal? Baal is the Canaanite storm god and the bringer of rain. In other words, he's the bringer of prosperity. He was the most important god in the Canaanite pantheon. And today we worship the same god. When you're drooling over the next toy, when you crave being rich, you're bowing to Baal. When you envy and covet your neighbor's possessions or your co-worker's promotion, you're bowing to Baal. 
when you even fret about the results of an election because, oh my goodness, if it goes this way, then I'm going to lose everything I've built and all my prosperity. You're bowing to Baal. Idolatry is alive and well. We may not bow to physical statues like that, but if you open up your credit card statements, your bank accounts, what you put your hope in for your greatest prosperity, you may find the symbols of Baal worship. And here's the message. Idolatry is alive and well, but it's also such a big deal that you can't take half measures when you deal with idols. You have to crush your idols. You have to pulverize them. You have to look to the furthest corners of your life and break the idols down and not just break them, but crush them to a powder, to a dust. But here's our problem today. I, I fear that we are all too happy to simply put our idols in the back of the closet instead of crushing them. We are all too happy with half measures. Perhaps for you, social media is a gateway to sexual sin or craving for beauty or craving for approval, and you just say, mm, okay, I'll just try to spend a little bit less time on it. You haven't crushed Ashram. You've just put Ashram in the closet. Perhaps you surround yourself with the comforts in your life, consuming hours of entertainment, and you just say, okay, I'll just try to spend a little bit less time on that. You haven't crushed the bail. You've just taken bail and put him in the back of your closet. And that will not do. You must crush your idols. Josiah was a king who crushed idols. That was our first point. It was absolutely stunning. Now, before we continue to the next point, in the sermon, I just want to take a moment to move along with the plot progression of this brilliant narrative because it truly is brilliant. Because as the story continues, you're going to see how the plot thickens. And it starts with the story of a faithful king and a faithful people. Faithful king and a faithful people. Here's how the story continues. Take a look at verse 8. It says, Now in the 18th year of his reign, in other words, he's 26 years old, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Messiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of jo uh, Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. You see the faithfulness of King Josiah. Once the cleansing was done, he ordered the repair of the house of his God. Why? Because it's his God. He wants to repair the, the place where his God will be worshipped above all. It shows deep personal ownership and connection. And so he entrusts the job to all of these faithful men. He puts his best men on it. And the rest of this passage showcases the faithfulness in what was being passed on, the treasures and the money passed on, but the mandate being passed on as well. And you see this repeated phrase over and over and over again in verses 8 to 12. I just want you to look out for it as we read it. And it's the phrase, they gave, they gave, they gave. Take a look at verse 9. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers um, of, the, uh, of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel, from all Judea and Benjamin and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were appointed in the house of the Lord. Other translations say they gave it to the supervisors of the work. And the workmen were working in the house of the Lord, and they gave it for repairing and restoring the house. And they gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And this is a great summary verse, verse 12. And the men did the work faithfully. Faithfully. 
don't know about you, but sometimes when I come across passages like this in my Bible reading plan, it's just really easy to just gloss over the, the details. You look at it and you're like, oh, okay, yeah, they, they, they built the temple. <laughs> but take a look, follow what the chronicler is trying to say with us. I think there's a, a, a diagram on the screen and it shows the, the different transitions of the, the treasures or the money that was collected being passed from one hand to the next. Follow, follow it, you can see it in the text. First, Josiah sends Shaphan, Messiah, and Joah. And then they take this Levite-collected money, and then they give it to Hilkiah, the high priest. And then Hilkiah takes this money, and then he gives it down to the workmen or to the supervisors. And then these guys, they, give, they take the money for stone and timber, and they give it to the carpenters and the builders. Now, you might look at that and say, like, that's great. That, that's great detail, but it's in God's word for a really, really important purpose. And here it is. Here you see the faithfulness of the workmen and the officials. You see this faithful passing of money down from one hand to the next. Every transfer is accounted for. There's no embezzlement. There's no monkey business. It showcases a corrupt, free administration. If there were ever an administration that was faithful in the history of Judah, it is this one. It's not just the faithful king. The whole administration is faithful. With one sincere, true motive to repair the house of their God. And if you really want to see the contrast between the administrations of old and this current administration in this text, look at verse 11 to 12. It really shows the contrast. You look at verse 11, it sees, you see the unfaithfulness of the kings of Judah who let the house of God go to ruin. These men ruled for shameful gain to line their pockets with God's money. But Josiah's men did the work faithfully. Other translations say they did it with integrity. Faithful king, faithful workman, a faithful administration. But they didn't just stop there. Just read on. Verse 12 and 13. Over them were set Jahath and Obadiah the Levites of the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshalim of the sons of the Kohathites to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. I love this text. No matter their differing discipline or background, even the Levites directed and supervised the work of all trades. The, com the present day equivalent would be like if the worship leaders put down their guitars and picked up a hammer. I don't know how handy Shayon is. So I was going to use him. But I'm not actually sure. But just imagine every single person here, instead of uh, playing their musical instruments, putting them down, picking up the hammer, becoming general contractors uh, during this time. They all chipped in for the love of God. Do you see their faithfulness? Do you see their unity? Those who did both religious work and those who did secular work. It was a whole body work. Look at the unity. And just as an aside note, 2020 has been a year of rebuilding from ruin in so many ways. Rebuilding worship services, that's why we're here tonight. Rebuilding discipleship practices, rebuilding missions efforts, rebuilding the baptism and the Lord's Supper practices. Perhaps most of all, the rebuilding of the church's distinct, unified voice. But sadly in the West, this 2020 rebuilding project of the church is often marked more by divisiveness than unity by independence instead of body connectedness. Here's a heart check question for you. 
Look at the faithful unity of the workmen and of the Levites in this text and ask, in times of ruin, in times of ruin, do we have a faithfulness and unity as the body of Christ to rebuild and repair? Do we roll up our sleeves and chip in regardless of the role? Hope Church Toronto North, I truly pray, would you have the same faithfulness and unity as the workmen and the Levites of Josiah? When you think back to this time, 2020, I pray that you will look back and say, wow, no matter what the role was, no matter what the gifting was, we all chipped in at a faithfulness and unity for the love of God. When you think of this time of ruin, would you meditate on the picture that this generation gave us? Because it truly was a beautiful picture. Because in this text, for the first time, you see, in a long time, you see a faithful generation I mean, they're doing it, right? Josiah was faithful. He led the temple restoration faithfully. The end, right? But the plot thickens because during the project, they found something. Verse 14 reads, while they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. And Shaphan brought the book to the king. See the repetition of the word, the book, over and over and over. It probably refers to the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. And here, previously, we saw that the chronicler went into fine detail on how the money was passed down. But now he's giving us fine detail on how uh, the, the book was passed up. The faithful transmission of the book from the bottom up, from Hilkiah to Shaphan, and finally to Josiah. Imagine the scene. Shaphan, book in hand, entering the king's courts. And this is what happens. Verse 16. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants they are doing, they have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Shaphan, what he's saying is this, King, I've got a report. I've got a report. Now, it's a report of the servant's faithfulness. There hasn't been embezzlement. They've, uh, there's been a ton of integrity. Everything is going to plan, but I'm not here for that. I'm here because we found a book. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. Now just pause at verse 18 right there. If this was your story, and you had to script an ending, how would you script it? I mean, let's recap. In this narrative, we see nothing but faithfulness. At age 16, Josiah begins to seek God. At age 20, he begins to purge false gods. And he doesn't just do half a job. He completely, thoroughly crushes the idols even beyond his jurisdiction. And once that job is done, when he is 26 years old, in faithfulness to his God, he commissions the repair and restoration of God's temple, his God's house. And in faithfulness, five different groups of people did the work faithfully and with integrity, reversing the sinful neglect of the kings that came before, reversing the sinful administration that came before. And now they've found a book. And the words of that book are going to be read out loud to the ears of the king. 
I mean, isn't this what the whole story has been building up to? Isn't this what we've been waiting for? Josiah began seeking God, and now he's found God's book. Surely this is the triumphant end of the story. Surely they'll hear from the book, well done, you've been a faithful generation, you're all in a great spot. This is exactly what the king and his people are supposed to look like, so now you're right with God. Isn't that what it's all about? Is that what they were going to hear? I mean, isn't that the essence of Christianity that I heard growing up in church? That if I'm faithful to God, he'll bless me. That if I faithfully do all the right things, then I'll be right with God, then I'll be blessed. I mean, isn't that the moral of the story? Be like King Josiah, live like Josiah, be a Josiah, and I'll be right with God. I do, and then God blesses. I mean, it only makes sense, right? Josiah has had two decades of faithfulness, and he took the throne at eight years old, and now God's going to bless him, right? Now God's going to say, great job. Surely he will hear the words and respond in joy, saying, I found it, I found it, I found it. Oh, how precious, oh, how, oh, how joy-giving. I mean, what an end to the story. Josiah's story began because he went to seek God, and he finds God's book. He finds God's word. Happy ending, right? This is what happened next. Look at verse 19. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. He tore his clothes. Tearing clothes then was a sign of deep grief. It was often a response of deep brokenness. It often paired with the act of putting dust and dirt on your head. It was a feeling of shame and worthlessness. The king who crushed idols, the king who dusted idols, his heart was in the dust. The king who crushed idols is crushed by the book. He wasn't given a pick-me-up by the book. He wasn't given, yes, you're faithful, now I'll bless you. He was absolutely crushed by the book. The crushing king became the crushed king. See, Josiah was a king who was crushed by the book. That's our final point. A king crushed by the book. I mean, what happened? Wasn't Josiah so faithful? Didn't he make the cut? Didn't he hit the mark? What happened? Verse 19, keep reading. It says, And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire for the, of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that have been found. Why? For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Do you see what happened? Josiah heard the book, and he didn't see immediately how faithful he had been. All he saw was how short he falls from the glory of God. All he sensed was his total inadequacy. And Josiah senses this deeply. He looks at the commands of the law to love God with all his heart and says, we didn't do that. We're undone. Great is the wrath, it says in verse 21, because our fathers have not kept. They haven't obeyed. And if you think it was just the generations that came before, no, no, no. It was their generation too. Because as the story continues, Josiah inquires of the Lord through his prophetess, Huldah. And this is what Huldah says. This is the verdict. Thus says the Lord, they have forsaken me and made offerings to other gods, even this generation as well. 
You're, the whole story of Chronicles is you're hoping for a good king, a faithful king, and it seems like one finally comes and his whole administration is faithful and it seems like the generation is faithful, but it's not enough. Josiah hears the words of the book and instead of a pat on the back, he is crushed by the weight of his sin and the holy wrath of God. Because this is the truth. Psalm 130, verse three. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The system is completely flipped over on its head. It's not enough to be a Josiah. You can't just do right and be right with God because none of us is good enough. If God really marked our iniquities, no one would stand and all that awaits is God's wrath. Can I tell you something? Until you realize your utter wretchedness, you will never see what Christianity is really about. See, the law was never meant as a ladder for us to climb to get to God. It was always designed as a mirror for our souls to see how ugly our sin is, and it is crushing. Here's a question. Have you been crushed by the book? Have you ever had a moment where you heard from God's book about your spiritual condition, about your sinful independence from God, and you were absolutely crushed because you knew how wretched you were? Because if you haven't, You've never been wrecked by sin. And I'm not sure if you truly know what Christianity is all about. Because being crushed by the book is the first step towards entering into the kingdom of God. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Spiritual bankruptcy. Do you see it? Do you see your need for, for your redemption from your wretched sin? Do you see your need for a savior? Perhaps you're a Christ follower and you have been for a, a long time. Perhaps you have been crushed by the book, but if you're honest, it hasn't happened in a while. When is the last time, dear fellow Christ follower, that you opened the book and you said, woe is me, because apart from Jesus Christ, I am certainly undone. When is the last time you opened your Bible or your Bible app and you cried tears of anguish and you stained your Bible with tears? When's the last time you were crushed by the book? When it, when it drove you to go to your knees to inquire deeply of the Lord? Has it been a long time? I'm going to admit, in my flesh, I have gone through stretches. I've gone through stretches in this pandemic where that hasn't happened. Where I've opened the book and sure it's edified me, sure it's increased my knowledge, but it has not caused me to stop in anguish, to, to tear my clothes in anguish and be crushed by it. Do you resonate? Oh, that we would be crushed by the book. That was Josiah's response. He was crushed by the book. A seemingly faithful king, faithful administration, faithful generation, still crushed by the book because he knew the weight of his sin. But do you know how God responds to that? God responds with mercy. Jump to verse 25. This is the last little section we'll read. It says this. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, this is what God says, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. That's the verdict. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God, 
when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Do you know what God says to Josiah's tearing of his clothes, to his anguish? He says, I heard you. I see you. I hear your repentance. I hear your humility, your brokenness, your being crushed. God saw us to punish sin, but he delays here his pouring of wrath. He says, it's not going to happen in your lifetime, Josiah. And that's God's heart towards the crushed heart in this room today. Isaiah 66 verse 2 says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. You want to hear the Lord say, I hear you and I see you? Bring your crushed heart, crushed by the book. Josiah was a king who trembled at God's word. He was the, and, and, and the amazing thing in this story is that this good king's righteousness spared the people during his lifetime. And God said to Josiah, your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. He said, as long as you live, the punishment will be stayed. I will hold my wrath. The good king Josiah saved his people. But here's a problem. Eventually Josiah dies. The people turn back to idols. And you get the book of Habakkuk. Josiah was a good king. But ultimately, he was not enough to save his people. Because he couldn't live forever to keep his people on track. And ultimately... That cup of God's wrath that he had prepared for his people, Josiah could not drink. He couldn't quench the wrath of God. And finally, the question of the Chronicles remains. When will the perfect king come? When will the perfect king come to reign on high? And the answer only comes hundreds of years later when another young king would come and his name was Jesus. See, this king too would seek God from a young age. But he wasn't just seeking the God of his father David. He was seeking the God who was his father. And this young king, he would live the perfect life that Josiah couldn't live. So, such that when he encountered the book, when he sees the book, he isn't crushed by the book. But he looks at it and he says, I am here to fulfill this. He is too holy to be crushed by the book. But here's the amazing thing. You know what? he does end up getting crushed because he chooses to get crushed. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Do you hear the words of your God? Jesus is the crushed king. He is the king who chose to be crushed for us. He chose to be crushed because of our sin. He sees the cup of God's wrath, and he sees that it has to be poured out upon all mankind, upon sinners like you and me, and through gritted teeth, through sweat drops of blood. He says, I will take that cup. I will drink it. It's hard, but I'm still going to drink it. I'll take the wrath that they deserve. I will be crushed so that my people will never have to. And so he was crushed on a cross for us, for me and for you. 
And by his wounds, we are healed forever. And it was not possible for death to hold him down, for death to crush him. God raised him up and he is now seated at the right hand of God. He is the king forever who will never die. Josiah died, our king doesn't. What happened to our longing for the king who reigns on, on, on high? This is your Christ. Take heart. This is the king that the Chronicles longed for. This is your king. This is, he's the one who can usher in the, the faithful administration that no other king could. He's the king who can give you a future hope that is untouchable, imperishable, undefiled, kept in heaven for you. This is your king. Your perfect king is on the throne today and forevermore. And nothing can shake his throne. Your king reigns on high. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray to you now. And we recognize that, Jesus, you are at the right hand of God in your rightful place on the throne of glory, yet on the throne of mercy at the same time. God, we recognize that we could never be citizens of you. We could never enter your kingdom apart from your sacrifice. Lord, we worship you because you are the king who, who fulfilled the book. You were the king who was perfect, yet you chose to be crushed for us. You were the king who was crushed so that we'd never be crushed, so that at the end of our day, we can enter your kingdom and, and be glad because we were welcomed in. Lord, you are the king who reigns today and is powerful over every molecule in the world. Lord, yours is the kingdom and the glory forever. Yours is the majesty. Yours is the administration that will never end. Yours is the true reign that will bring hope. Nothing on our earth, Lord, even on the heels of a heated presidential election, nothing on this earth will truly last, but you will last because you are sitting on the throne today. As we pray to you now, you are on your throne, and so we worship you and we praise you. We thank you that you are not just the king, but you're our king, and we praise you that you will never die, that you live forever, and one day we will see you again. We thank you, Jesus Christ, because you are our king. In your most precious name we pray. Amen. For more resources or information about Hope Church, visit HopeTorontoNorth.com.